You're listening to Forward, a podcast from faculty at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, hosted by Michelle Knight, Josh Jipp, Madison Pierce, and James Arcadi. Forward invites listeners into the mission of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School through conversations with faculty, staff, and guests. Y'all, welcome to Forward. It is great to have you here. Uh, I am hanging out with my friend Josh Jip, who has been doing quite a bit of reading. You know, he's on research leave, if you hadn't heard, so he's just laying around reading all the time. <laughs> um, but he's been talking about some higher critical works he's been reading, some reader response. Josh, what's mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. Um, what's really mm-hmm. pushing your boundaries these days? Yeah, I've been really getting into post-structuralism in terms of literary theory and kind of really tapping into some reader response criticism. And just, you know, kind of my world's just been, I don't even know what to do with this, but I've been really blown away by this new book uh, I got. It's, uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's called uh, We Are in a Book <laughs> by, Mo, by Mo Willems. Do you know this book, Michelle? It's powerful. In fact, I, in fact, I do. I have it right here. I too what? have been reading this. You know, this is really interesting because you might not think that a kid would be into hermeneutics, but yeah. my three and a half year old is just over the moon about this book. So we actually read it together at nighttime. Oh, every night. Hermeneutics amazing. right before bed. Amazing. Yes, a three-year-old that's into post-structuralism. That's, it's something, y'all. That makes me, okay. He wow. really, he well, really is advanced. Not everyone knows this book, Michelle. So I thought it might not be a bad idea to, uh, you know, just kind of pick up in the middle of the book, and why don't we? Uh, why don't we give the readers a taste of kind oh, of some sure. of the hermeneutical things we've been, you know, working yeah. through? And um, I don't know. Uh, are you ready to go? I'm gonna be. Yeah. I'm gonna be uh, Gerald the elephant, if that's okay with you. Yeah, I'll be Piggy, and I, I just really think it's um uh, it's important for us to really put our heart and soul into this book. It really can come alive uh, when we uh, put our own kind of ideas and yeah. and and twist on things. I All know. Right, uh, I don't. I, I wish everyone could see the pictures here, but here we go. You ready, Michelle? I know. For our listeners, just listen closely uh, to yeah. this important work. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah. All right. You can make the reader say a word? Indeed I can, if the reader reads out loud. That is a good idea. That is a funny idea. <laughs> here I go. <clears throat> Banana. <laughs> did, you, did you hear that? The reader said banana. <laughs> oh, the reader said it again. <laughs> oh. oh my. Banana. It's so funny. Now, uh, do you want another turn before the book ends? <gasps> ends? The book ends? Yes, all books come to an end. When will the book end? Hmm. Uh, I will look. Uh, it seems that we'll end on page 57. Page 57. It is page 46 now. Ah! Now it is page 47. This book is going too fast. I have more to give. More words. More jokes. More bananas. I just want to be read. I have a great idea. Whisper, whisper. That is a good idea. Hello, will you please read us again? I hope this works. Me too. And that, my friends, is the end of this really important and helpful work. Uh, Keep tuning in to Forward Podcast to hear more higher critical reflections on children's literature from um, our very own Josh Jett Mm -hmm. and Dr. Michelle Knight. Mm -hmm. 
Looking forward to our hermeneutics conversation with Dr. David Louie in a minute. I have a feeling he's not going to go quite as deep into sure. hermeneutics and biblical interpretation as what we just did. But right. I think the, the, the conversation is going to be excellent and profitable nonetheless. So Look, I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Hello and welcome to Forward. I'm Michelle Knight. And I'm Josh Chip. And today we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. David Louie, the Chair of Biblical and Systematic Theology Department uh, and the Associate Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology at TEDS. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, David. It's great to be here. David, you and I have been friends for almost 10 years now, right? I think we were hired at almost the exact same time. And so while everybody on the faculty is a good friend of mine, we've kind of had, along with Eric Tully, the unique opportunity of coming to TEDS at the same time, right? Is that- That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you started one semester before I did, but yes. about the same time. Yeah, once one semester before, and I one of one of the highlights of that time has been our trip to Cote d'Ivoire that you, Eric, and I went, and uh, I had so much fun. But there was one time where I felt as though I would often be left out by you and Eric. Do you remember what this was? I think I can probably guess. I don't know if you want me to spoil it or if I no, want to let I'm, you. I'm, kinda... I'm curious. Yeah, do you remember. <laughs> Uh, it probably had to do with Eric and I kind of geeking out about either Star Wars or Star Trek. Yes, in some capacity. yes. No, it was totally, you knew exactly, it was Star Trek. So I thought we'd open up by a little uh, a little window into your heart, see how much of a Trekkie you really are. And we're going to do this really quickly, all right? We're going to do a short, qu- short quiz, uh, three <laughs> questions. I want to see how many of these you can get right, all right? You ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. What is is Sulu's primary position in the USS Enterprise? Is it engineer, science officer, or helmsman? Oh, definitely helmsman. Helmsman, one for one. Uh, Which Star Trek captain has an artificial heart? Is it Jonathan Archer, Benjamin Sisko, or Jean-Luc Picard? I'm going to say Jonathan Archer because I never watched that series as much, and I don't recall either of no, it's Picard. It's, 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 oh Picard. my gosh! Okay, maybe all of Ted's has Trekkies. This is the oh, last wow. one. You need two out of three, and then there's a bonus oh my question. That's you need, very right. embarrassing. Because Next Generation was really the show that my family watched. I, I, so I should have known. Shocked. That, that uh, was an easy one, David. All right, who was the first Vulcan science officer aboard the Starship? Was it Spock? Was it uh, Sorek? Or was it? I don't know how to say this person's name. Tipol or Tipol or something like T-Pow. that. Tipol. It's Tipol. Yeah. Can you rephrase the question? Who was the first Vulcan to have first like a Vulcan position? science officer aboard the starship? Aboard the starship. Yeah, I'm still a little unclear here, but I'm going to go with Spock. It, this, the the answer you know, Michelle. I do know. <laughs> oh my gosh! I well, do. So I didn't think this was going to happen, but the real Trekkie. <laughs> is Dr. Knight. Oh my gosh. Cuz I've right. watched I watched the earlier ones and it sounds like David hasn't watched those. Last last one. I, I did watch them but it's been a while, but I'm happy okay. to be bested by Dr. Knight. That's that's no. okay. All right, this is this for is any of you. This is not something I have pride in winning. So, please, please win this, David. Michelle or David. <laughs> what does this mean? Hab sosi uch. I'm going to fault your pronunciation. Uh, I think <laughs> it's, David, Klingon. Did you actually... it's Klingon for your mother Obviously. has a smooth forehead. You knew that, Michelle? 
And it's not something you're supposed to say out loud unless you're trying to start a fight. So anyway, David, thanks for, thanks for humoring me. I don't know. Well, you know, Josh, there is actually a Klingon version of the Bible. Are you familiar with this? Uh, you know, I'm not actually, but. Uh, well, it's something you should consider maybe <laughs> when you're teaching text criticism or something. It's a, it's a, a modern version Okay. Something, something to, okay. Uh, to think about. All I know so far is how to say your mother has a smooth forehead. So I've got a ways <laughs> to go here, but um, <laughs> all right. To wow. be, to get to our serious question, David, um, as I said before, you've been here almost 10 years. I think a lot of our listeners would love to hear a little bit about your vocational journey, how it is you ended up wanting to even be in this profession of teaching theology. Yeah, great. Thanks. It's a real pl- uh, privilege to be here. Uh, my journey to theology was a little bit indirect, I guess. I My two great loves in high school were really biology and music, and I ended up actually studying music in college and taking a lot of weird biology classes just uh, for fun. And um, towards the end of my time, this was at Wheaton College, I, I took a number of Bible theology classes and just kind of got hooked but I really just had the enthusiasm of a beginner. I didn't have any con- conception at all of what it meant to undertake um, a course of theological study in a formal way. So I went to seminary, just kind of stumbling my way through, uh, taking as many classes as I could. And it kind of, um, you know, just sort of emerged organically as I kept sort of following, you know, one question to the next. I will say that, you know, for me, what what initially drew me to theology was, I think, a sort of deep um, existential um, set of questions that sort of took hold of me in retrospect, um, even when I was in junior high. And I've always sort of had a deep interest in the kinds of questions that theology is really addressing. And so, um, as someone who teaches theology, I recognize lots of people don't feel that way. Um, They often don't feel that same sense of deep existential connection um, with the sorts of questions theologians are asking. So I've had to kind of learn over the years to build bridges um, in those kinds of contexts, because for me, it always has just felt very obvious that the stakes are pretty high with these questions and that how we're going to live and the kinds of things we're going to prioritize very much hang in the balance depending on what judgments we reach um, about questions about who God is and what God is calling us to do and calling us to be and that sort of a thing. So that's a bit of a snapshot. I can say more if you want, but that's a very, uh, yeah, very short version of the story. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I would love to hear, was there, you know, some, sometimes I look back and think, and I don't know, Michelle, if you feel this way, why did I go into new Testament instead of old or why, old instead of new. I, I, was there any reason like it was theology that grabbed you, David, as opposed to, I, I, I'm sure some other discipline you could answer some of these questions, but theology in particular that was attractive? Yeah, I mean, I suppose like a, a kind of a glib way to answer the question would be, I think I chose systematic theology because I was reluctant to choose between disciplines. Mm-hmm. And so, I felt like systematic theology affords one the opportunity to be interdisciplinary, perhaps in a way that uh, some other disciplines don't permit to the mm-hmm. same extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more fundamentally, though, it really did ultimately sprout from these kind of existential questions, most of, most of which really finally get at the question of what does it all add up to? I mean, what is most fundamentally true about the reality we inhabit? And, and what does that mean for 
what we ought to believe and how we ought to live and the sorts of things we ought to value. And I've always found the moment in our theological reflection where we start really reckoning with those synthetic judgments, those, you know, fundamental, um, you know, issues of, of what's most fundamentally real to just be very thrilling. And, um, and, and for me, at least those kinds of questions cast a very long shadow um, for human life, just generally speaking. So I think a lot of it is motivated from that. I'm super grateful for, you know, those occupying other disciplines because I see those things as indispensable to those larger kinds of questions. But for me, there's always this kind of irresistible pressure um, no matter where we're located in our inquiry, ultimately I'm wanting to sort of push to what does this add up to? You know, what, what, what's really fundamentally true then? And what exactly does that mean for us? And I think systematics is one way of thinking about systematics is it's the juncture at which those kinds of questions are allowed to occupy center stage. Yeah. That's really well articulated, David. That's super helpful. And you've spoken quite a bit about the the integration of the disciplines and the way that that can be enriching. I'd love to hear more about that. How do you see the relationship between biblical studies and theology to play out? Um, And even uh, if you haven't seen it that way, what's ideal? Uh, How can that be enriching? What can that look like when it's at its best? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, I mean, like a lot of people these days, Um, I think I would want to start by saying, I think that uh, the practice of theology in all the disciplines has been um, hindered in certain ways um, as a consequence of the way in which we have kind of allowed ourselves to be fragmented into these different disciplinary silos. Mm. I think we've gained a lot from that as well. So it's not a sort of um, uh, unqualified fall narrative here. Sure. But for example... um, just to be critical of my own discipline for a moment, you know, there was a time when really theology just was thick exegesis. I mean, that's really fundamentally what theology was. Obviously, it involved conversation with philosophical traditions and and that sort of thing as well. But this notion now that we have one thing called exegesis and another thing called theology or what, however you label the departments, I think for most theologians across the history of the church would, would, it would strike them as a, very bizarre, um, you know, state of affairs. So I think, you know, ideally, I, I think um, we're kind of constantly, those of us who still have a vested interest in a unified Christian vision of the world, I think we're all sort of looking for ways to kind of piece together that holistic, you know, synthetic approach, even as we try to reap the benefits to the best we can of the increasing disciplinary specialization. And there are many, I don't want to, you know, there's a both and to this. Sure. Um, so that's kind of a, a 20,000 foot um, question. Yeah. I'll pause there to see if maybe you want to follow up with something more specific, but that that's a starting point at least. Thank you. No, it's, I think it's really good. And, and I think we can drill into it a little bit more deeply, David, because one of the things we did want to talk to you about is um, the class that you and Eric Tully teach, co-teach together on the Psalms. Um, what your, your response to Michelle's question at sort of the, the, the overarching level, I think we can probably, there, I mean, your, your, your desire to even teach that course with Eric on the Psalms um, I, I'm assuming is deeply connected to the answer that you just gave. Do you want to, do you want to tell us a little bit about what, what is this class? What are you and Eric trying to, to do? 
Um, yeah, it's it's really a fun class. We've taught it twice now and hope to teach it many more times in the future. I would say it began really it grew out of uh, my friendship with Eric. Mm-hmm. You know, we we carpool together. We we hang out a lot, and of course, we talk about uh, Bible and theology quite a bit. And um, you know, through a variety of conversations, both Eric and I, you know, recognize that the current state of the discussion when it comes to exegesis, you know, it there tend to be these kind of silos that operate within the academy um, where there's a lot of mutual distrust and a lot of dissonance between, say, for example, when theologians kind of circle up and talk about things like theological interpretation or figural exegesis or what have you, um, that that's sort of one conversation that's taking place. And meanwhile, um, in the Guild of Old Testament Scholars, there are different conversations happening. And, you know, we sort of came to realize that oftentimes that these are actually very fruitful conversations, but unfortunately they're not intersecting enough. Mm. And there's a lot of um, a kind of failure to understand um, the other side of the uh, discussion from both sides. And, you know, Eric and I disagree on some pretty significant questions of exegetical method, but in a friendly way where we both uh, respect one another. And so we thought it would be just a really fun opportunity to teach a class. And rather than to make it super formal and super theoretical and simply spend our time talking about hermeneutics and exegetical methodologies, we would actually root it to a particular text, namely the Psalms, which for a lot of reasons is such a... um, you know, provokes so many interesting questions about the nature of, of interpretation and exegesis. And if I can, if you'll permit me just to brag briefly about TEDs, um, one of the things that I've been, that I've really loved about the class is, you know, it has a pretty steep set of prereqs. You have to have both expertise in Hebrew and you also have to be able and willing to engage complex um, texts from systematic theology and we read a lot of texts from the history of interpretation from people like Augustine, Luther, Aquinas, and Calvin. And my observation just generally across the landscape of the theological academy now is you could very easily at many schools get students to enroll for a class that would do one or the other of those two things. Mm-hmm. In other, in other yeah. words, you could get a certain batch of students who really is into Hebrew syntax and you know Hebrew lexicography and so forth. Uh, to take a class on the Psalms that really emphasize those questions. And then at other, you know, other schools, you could get a batch of students who would love to read, you know, Augustine's um, sermons on the Psalms and, you know, and talk all about pre-modern exegesis. But I, I don't know of too many places right now where you would actually get, you know, 20 odd students in a room who are not only capable of doing both of those things at the same time, but are actually super excited about mm-hmm. engaging both sets of literatures. So, a little shameless bragging on behalf of Ted's, but I always feel kind of <laughs> proud that it's like, wow, there's like 20 other human beings in the world, all in this room, <laughs> yeah. who who really want to do this. Yeah. So that's that's kind of fun. And if and if you're out there listening to this and you want to do that and you're not at Ted's, why not? Come, it's okay. It's okay, <laughs> David. You can, we can you can brag and market all we all we want here. So. <laughs> we obviously are pro Ted's on this yeah. podcast, so there's no yeah. problem there. Well, uh, David, you kind of signaled the fact that there are a lot of disagreements that come up in this Mm. class in a kind of friendly manner. Um, And we on this podcast have talked quite a bit about how we think that's something that the Academy desperately needs uh, are these spaces in which we can uh, disagree charitably and ultimately work toward understanding God better through the medium of scripture. 
Uh, can you kind of point us to some of yeah. the disagreements that come up in that class, either between you and Eric or between some of the students? What are some of the things that are on the table um, that uh, people have differing perspectives about? Yeah, that's a good question. There is a whole range of disagreements that come up, but I think a couple fundamental questions would be, well, first of all, um, most of throughout most of the history of the church, the Psalms have been received as the prayer book of the church. That is to say, the Psalms are not simply model prayers that we um, observe and then kind of pray in an imitative way. We might do that. That, that, that would be perfectly appropriate. But I think that um, the history of appropriation of the Psalms has, has involved something stronger than that, is that we actually pray these words. We, we, we actually put the words of the psalmist onto our lips. Um, and that raises a lot of really interesting questions about um, you know, what's, what's going on when I do that? Well, in other words, just to give a very concrete example, what does it mean, what does it mean for someone like me living in 21st century Chicagoland uh, to pray the Psalms of Ascent? Um, I've never been to Jerusalem. I'd like to go someday. Um, but even if I visited Jerusalem, I mean, the Temple Mount is no longer the distinctive locus of God's presence on earth from the perspective of Christian theology. Right. So what does it mean then to... Um, to pray, not just imitate praying the Psalms of Ascent in some sort of maybe principialized way, but what does it mean to actually appropriate these words and to pray them? And so it it really raises the question, uh, I mean, what, one question that comes up is sort of like, um, what happens to the contextual embeddedness of the Psalm of the Psalter when it is appropriated by Christians? Mm-hmm. And so... And what does it mean to actually respect the particularity of the psalm um, when we when we engage in that kind of creative appropriation? And so, as you can imagine, there's different ways of thinking about that. I mean, Augustine, for example, he thought um, a lot of that, a lot of the contextual embeddedness of the Psalter sort of maps onto a kind of spiritual topography. So I may not ascend the Temple Mount. Um, but I am called to engage in a kind of spiritual ascent in which, you know, where there is a sort of, I suppose you could say figural or possibly even allegorical, although I like to avoid that word because it tends to be, it tends to be controversial. Um, but there's a way in which somehow I, as a Christian, am still um, being called by God to ascend in a way that is sort of figurally uh, represented by the literal topography of, of ancient Israel. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one approach, um, but there's others. Mm-hmm. Um, Can I interrupt, David? How would Eric feel yeah, about, does, does Eric uh, kind of, does that make him a little queasy when you uh, 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 talk about some of Augustine's moves there with respect to the Psalms? I don't know if queasy is quite the right word, but <laughs> certainly nervous. Um, All right. That's yes, <laughs> nervous. Something, yeah. some, something I've noticed that I think is an interesting, um, I don't know if paradox is the right word. But there's an interesting way in which I think both approaches, um, there are various ways in which scholars or theologians seek to hold on to the particularity of the psalm. Uh, The impulse that you find, I would say, among many contemporary Old Testament scholars is to say, the reason we don't engage in that kind of allegorization or the reason we don't engage in that kind of figural reading 
is because things like figural reading and allegory, they displace the historical particularity of the psalm. And so you end up with something that's kind of sanitized, run through a Christian, you know, hermeneutical lens, and you and you essentially denude the psalm of its distinctive contribution within the canon. And I think that's a very mm-hmm. uh, important concern that yeah. we need to hang on to. On the other hand, there's sort of a, a catch-22 to that, because if you refuse to engage in figural reading then what you probably will have to end up doing in order to pray that psalm is to engage in some kind of principializing. So, in other words, what I pray from the Psalms of Ascent is not actually the Psalms of Ascent. It's sort of being run through, you know, some kind of diagnosis of what's the principle at work here, and then Mm -hmm. I pray that principle. And so, there's a kind of ironic way, I think if Augustine were with us, he'd say, actually, that denudes the psalm of its particularity, because, you know, I... I think Augustine would say, I want to sort of hang on to and meditate on these like particular themes of like ascending the mount and so on and so forth. And um, there's a sort of weird way, uh, maybe a counterintuitive way in which Augustine's approach allows you precisely because you're willing to engage in figural interpretation, you're allowed to kind of hang on to the, the particular furniture of the psalm in a way that if you're principializing, you don't because you're sort of abstracting out universal principles or something. So, you know, I I don't mean to frame that in a prejudicial way as if one is obviously right or one is obviously Mm -hmm. wrong, but I think both are kind of grappling with the question of what does it look like to, to really keep this Psalm and to respect it and honor it um, as it is. No, that's super helpful, David. And I think you you articulated well the ways that like Old Testament scholars get nervous about kind of um, dehistoricizing some of these texts. I'll say for me that when I get nervous about that, it's not even so much that I'm trying to keep the history in place so much as I'm trying to provide interpretive controls. Um, And occasionally to so many of us, figural reading or allegorical reading or whatever we want to call it, um, students label it eisegesis almost uh, because it feels like we're just doing whatever we want. That historical particularity provided some, you know, some guideline uh, for handling scripture rightly. And this kind of leads to a question that one of our Twitter followers, uh, they were hoping to ask um, as part of this podcast. They were wondering about the fact that we tend to teach this kind of exegetical rigor where we really pay attention to those particularities and, and the interpretive bounds they offer. But they have observed, and it's been observed widely, that sometimes it feels like what Paul is doing in the New Testament um, with uh, his Old Testament usage seems more creative than what we would teach in an exegesis class. And so he wants to know uh, whether he gets to interpret like Paul. Uh, and that kind of goes with what we were talking about. What do we? How creative are we allowed to be? And how do some of these other strategies um, allow us to, um, where are the interpretive guidelines if they're not in historical particularity? Yeah, let me just start by affirming the premise and the concern that's sort of nested in the question. It as much as I may um, have a certain fondness for pre-modern biblical interpretation, I've never, I've never really um, identified with the approach which says that, you know, these pre-modern interpreters can do no wrong. I have been in, in, you know, circles of conversation where that was the place where there was such a thorough browbeating of modern, you know, methodologies that, you know, to critique origin or something was to be accused of being sort of, uh, you know, parochially modern or something. Yeah. So I, I, there's a good, there's very good reason. I mean, frankly, some of the exegetical claims that Augustine makes, I think, are just you know completely ridiculous. I mean, there, there's just no getting around that fact that 
the issue of hermeneutical control is an important one. And um, anyway, I'll, I'll circle back to that, but that's just sort of a, an sure. initial, just sort of, I think it is a really important question and something we need to think very carefully about. In terms of whether we can interpret the Bible like Paul, um, it's a tricky question to answer in a straightforward way because it, of course, presupposes that we've diagnosed what it is that Paul is doing when he interprets um, the Old Testament. And I'm not entirely sure that, you know, Paul has just one way of doing that. In fact, I'm pretty sure that he doesn't. And there's also, you know, we would we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that, you know, what exactly Paul is doing is itself the object of ongoing, you know, debate, debate among, among Paul scholars. Um, once we have sort of settled on some kind of diagnosis of what, what it is that Paul's doing, then there's the kind of question that I think maybe the student is getting at, which is, are we, are we, should we conclude on the basis of the fact that Paul did this, that we should go and do likewise? And there's some differences among modern biblical scholars on that question as well. Um, in an attempt to not be quite so evasive by saying, you know, people disagree about it, I'll just sort of <laughs> put my cards on the table. Um, I do think, I do think that um, the New Testament use of the Old Testament should be a governing criterion for us as we think about um, our own hermeneutical approach. I, I hesitate to say this in the presence of an ex scholar, but it just seems to me that one of the crucial issues at stake in so much of the book of Acts is who is appropriating the story of the Old Testament according to its actual, mm-hmm. you know, that which really is unifying the story in a sense. I mean, what are the, what is the actual, what is, what is it in which the Old Testament actually coheres? And so it would strike me as a kind of a bizarre conclusion to, um, to read Acts and then to sort of say, well, that was okay for them, but we, you know, we should deploy different reading strategies now. I mean, it seems to me that there are certain reading strategies deployed in Acts, which are the grammar of, um, you know, the basic grammar of early Christian identity. Mm-hmm. And so that isn't to say that it's easy or that there aren't some really perplexing examples where I'm not quite sure what the New Testament writers are doing. But I do, I, I would want to say, at least for my money, that the notion that we could somehow I diagnose what it is they are doing and then sort of safely leave it behind as not really pertinent to our exegetical method, I would find that to be... Um, that's not an approach that I would endorse. I think that it is, it should, it ought to be instructive for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said, David. I uh, want to keep talking about acts, but uh, <laughs> this isn't a podcast for me today. So let me, let me, let me move on one more question. You're Lutheran, right? Is that true? I am. That's right. Guilty is charged. You did your dissertation. And we love guilt as Lutherans. <laughs> uh, and you did your dissertation on Luther. I did. I mean, we've only got a few minutes, you know, we can't, we can't go on too long here. So I'm just going to basically give you an opportunity to say, to an- answer a question, make a pitch. What, um, Luther gets a bad rap, you know, for so many different things, but tell us one thing you love about Luther and maybe one thing you love about Luther that we could, uh, uh, also learn to love or benefit from. Wow. How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) You've got got a few minutes. You've got a few minutes. You've got time. Yeah. Don't don't feel too rushed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, so I, I mean, I should probably start by saying I don't love everything about Luther. Sure. sure. Um, there's plenty of stuff in Luther that I think we can, we can, uh, rightfully repudiate. 
And there are other things where I think uh, Luther benefits from being one voice within the larger cloud of witnesses. So there are kind of deficiencies in his thought that it's, it's a good thing that he's not all we have. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, you know, something I think we could learn from Luther, there's a lot of things I could mention here. I think, I think something Luther really did well is he recognized that um, as an exegete of scripture, I think Luther was, was uniquely attentive to the ways in which scripture is used by God as a kind of crucible for spiritual formation. Um, if we wanted to map that into sort of late medieval categories with which Luther was comfortable, we might say that for Luther, the kind of tropological sense, which is the reading of scripture, which is um, the point at which there's really an existentially formative impact on the reader, that he's very attentive to the, to the, to the way in which um, scripture is ultimately meant to form a certain kind of um, person, a, a certain kind of Christian. And as a result, there is a kind of, you know, I guess, pastoral or existential thrust uh, to Luther's biblical exegesis, which just makes it very soul nourishing in a way that perhaps our more scientific um, uh, objective approach to the to the task of of biblical commentary uh, sometimes is. And um, you know, Luther is infamous or famous, depending on where you're coming from. His 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 understanding of uh, a kind of dialectic between law and gospel. Mm-hmm is one place where I think that comes through. Um, I think that that distinction can sometimes be misunderstood, but essentially I think what Luther is really getting at is um, it's a recognition of the way in which when God works on us through scripture, he is working both to deconstruct us um, through a sort of intentional pedagogy and to build us up and to, and to sort of, um, forge an identity in Christ, which, which is, uh, sustaining for us. So, yeah, I, I don't know. There's, there's other stuff I could mention, but I think this kind of pastorally inflected, um, approach to theology and exegesis is one of the reasons why I'll just give an anecdotal example here. If I, um, there was a time when I was foolish enough to read long excerpts from the- theology textbooks to my wife, Pam, and, <laughs> you know, and a lot of the times it would sort of, you know, it'd be something that to me was like super interesting and it just kind of fell flat. But I found when I read a, an excerpt from Luther, it usually is something that is very impactful. And, and I think that there's something about the way Luther wrote, and it's this kind of pastorally inflected, existentially um, emphasized approach to theology, which is, is, is a reason why Luther, perhaps more than many other theologians, is someone that um, all Christians kind of find resources for the Christian life in to an extent that I think is, is valuable for us to imitate. Mm. Thanks, David. David, that's... Super helpful. Thank you so much. I wish we had more time to talk about that. I feel guilty, actually, because we made you talk about biblical interpretation and then didn't let you talk a lot about Luther. Uh, That's what you get for having two biblical scholars as your hosts today, I guess. Uh, But we'll have to have you back on. But before we finish up, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now? What are you writing? Uh, what, uh, What are you researching? What's capturing your attention? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, right now, I've got kind of two projects in the hopper with a few others sort of in the queue, I guess. Uh, the main one is um, 
a book length monograph um, focused on the, what I'm calling the fate of modern Christocentrism. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially looking at um, if you, if you read, you know, theology, there's a kind of interesting development that begins around the early 19th century. And that is that right around that time, for some particular reason, uh, theologians begin sort of um, latching onto this notion that um, the way to sort of steer theology forward and to overcome certain deficiencies of theology's past is to embrace in a more radical and intentional way a, a Christocentric approach to dogmatic theology. And um, it spreads quite pervasively throughout the 19th century. It's probably made most familiar for many of us in the work of the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. But, you know, contrary to the way the history is often told, Barth is in no way the innovator of this. He's actually, ironically, this is one of the areas where he's um, demonstrably still very indebted to uh, the liberal Protestant teachers who he's supposed to have broken with in the early 19 teens. And so my question in the book is really um, what accounts for this sudden proliferation um, of Christocentrism as this kind of programmatic uh, principle in theology? Um, Where does the movement actually um, go? So to kind of narrate what I'm calling the fate of the movement, you know, where, where are we now? Where has it taken us? And then to do a little bit of constructive uh, reflection on, you know, to what extent and in what way should Christian theology aspire to be uh, Christocentric? Um, You know, is, is that, is, is that sort of criteriological principle still useful for us? And if so, in what particular way should we affirm it? Um, You know, and, and what are some ways that are maybe not so helpful? So that's, that's kind of the, the project very broadly construed that I'm working on right now. Mm-hmm. That sounds uh, really timely. Uh, yeah. I look forward to hearing more about it. Well, at this point, I fear that we're going to have to close out uh, at what we always say is that's just the forward. Uh, our hope is that uh, you'll have the opportunity to hear more from Dr. Louis, whether uh, you are reading his book in the years ahead or whether we've talked you into coming to TED's. Uh, one of the joys of the podcast today was actually getting to talk about some of the classes uh, that make this such a special place to study. Uh, And if that really struck your attention, y'all, if you're a student at TEDS, make some time with your electives to take these classes. Uh, And if you're not, consider coming, doing a master's in theology uh, or doing an MDiv and spending some of those electives uh, digging deeper into some of these topics. We would love to have you. Uh, We'd love to chat with you more. Um, but we also encourage you to watch for Dr. Louis, uh, Dr. Louis's work coming out in the next couple of years uh, about Christocentrism uh, and the effect that that's having on biblical interpretation. I want to take just a second uh, to thank Dr. Louis uh, for joining us. It really was so fun to talk. Uh, I want to thank my co-host, Josh Jip. I definitely want to thank our listeners for tuning in so um, uh, patiently uh, because we're, we're crazy uh, sometimes, but y'all keep coming back. So we really appreciate that. Uh, and so devotionally. So thank you for that. Uh, but we definitely want to thank our producer, Curtis Pierce, for all of the work he does behind the scenes, for our faithful GA, uh, Lauren Janusik. Uh, and ultimately, y'all, uh, it's just so fun to do this with everybody. So thanks for being a part of this work. I'm Michelle Knight. I'm Josh Jip. We'll see you and next time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thought that was my part. Thanks, everyone. It was your part. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> 
Forward is a podcast hosted by faculty at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. You can subscribe to our newest episodes on your preferred podcast app or at forwardpodcast.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Forward Podcast to get updates and additional links to content. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School is located 25 miles north of Chicago, with extension sites across the country and online. Trinity educates men and women to engage in God's redemptive work in the world by cultivating academic excellence, Christian faithfulness, and lifelong learning. You can find more information at teds.edu.